Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolic and today's guest is Michael Ronan. He is the author of Modern Masculinity for the Conscious Man. Michael takes us down a journey exploring challenges of the modern man and how media has given voice to radical ideas that question or even threaten masculine traits. Michael discusses what is masculinity, the difficulties young men face with radical feminist views, topics of power, violence, what is the conscious man, free will, and even rites of passage. Today we have a thought-provoking and even controversial discussion at times, and I hope you'll enjoy it because I certainly did. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Michael Ronan. Michael Ronan, a big thank you for coming onto the show today. Nesh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's going to be a real treat. I'm looking forward to really finding out so much about this book of yours, Modern Masculinity for the Conscious Man. But before we sort of delve into that, maybe it's a good place to start in terms of how did this book come about? Where, what, what sort of led you into this space? Yeah, so uh, I'm actually uh, a writer uh, quite late in life. My, my life has actually led me down many, many different avenues. Uh, I've been a professional actor for several years, uh, a teacher. Uh, I've been an account manager for a website development company, a, a baker, a farmer. Uh, what else? I've worked in publishing and uh, I've worked in banks and in government and uh Lots and lots of different avenues in my life, but the, the, the one thing that has captured my energy through all these years has been my thirst for knowledge. And uh, I provide a little description of this in the book. I, I call myself a philomath, which is essentially it's a lover of learning and studying. And I, I love to uncover and discover things which generally are not part of the collective awareness. And uh, you know, I've never been interested in becoming a subject matter expert and uh, say ending up in academia, writing scholarly papers. And uh, I have much preferred to have led a much more broad and varied life. Uh, I, my interest is, is in many, many different subject areas. And uh, I prefer to live with real people who are grappling with how to get by from day to day and how to improve their lives and their families and their communities. So, uh, yeah, for the last two years, I've been writing this book and synthesizing my research and my thoughts about the situation that men are finding themselves in in this day and age. And uh, hopefully I can synthesize that book down into an hour, an hour and a half of our conversation with each other. 
Yeah, lovely, lovely. Look, one of the things that kind of jumped out at me in terms of having on the show is this concept of masculinity and 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 also the conscious man. I'm sure we'll, we'll touch into what that actually means, but masculinity is really a term these days that I think is in so many ways kind of fraught with uh, uh, danger. You know, it's a scary topic to tackle, you know, as is femininity. Uh, how how do you go about discussing and, and, and talking about what, what what is this idea of masculinity and, and in terms of modern masculinity, as, as your book suggests? Right. Uh, yes, historically, there, there have been well, I guess two types of masculinity we can point to, which is traditional masculinity and also uh, modern masculinity, which uh, is, is quite a bit different from the image of the traditional masculine male. But in today's world, men are experiencing a crisis in masculinity. And uh, as a society, men are now regarded as, I would say they're, they're regarded as contemptible uh, Broadly speaking, uh, they're subject to cl- of claims of their masculinity being toxic, for instance, or of having male privilege, or of uh, you know being potentially or actually violent abusers or rapists or deadbeats, or um, you know the, 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 there there are many many issues that men are facing that uh, are increasingly pressing, such as um, you know husbands uh, being taken to court uh, and receiving what the modern vernacular is calling divorce rape and having their sons and daughters removed from their lives by the courts. Um, There's the presence of men in colleges, which is declining precipitously and has been for the last probably 30 to 40 years. Um, And once they get into college, certainly in the United States, which is where I'm living, uh, they are one step away from being accused of some sort of sexual misconduct and rather than facing criminal charges are brought in front of a college tribunal to uh, determine their guilt and quite often uh, are subject to expulsion. Um, There are also increasing levels uh, or I should say decreasing levels of testosterone in men quite uh, worryingly. Uh, Male suicide is uh, increasing with more and more men, vastly more men than women, uh, taking their lives, um, you know, and uh, it's a lot, lot harder for, for younger men these days to find good, meaningful, well-paid, uh, well-remunerated employment. And on top of that, they're juggling huge levels of debt, student debt. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you've got the perennial problems of how to get sex and find love and companionship from choosing the right person in their lives. I focus on heterosexual relationships predominantly because that's, that's what I am. I'm a heterosexual male. Um, but it's uh, advice is in short supply for these men as to how they can face their challenges. And so my hope with the book is to, um, I should say, num- my my first hope is to equip them with the, the tools, the, the intellectual, emotional, spiritual uh, tools that they need to meet the demands of this life. Uh, but going further than that, the, the book is, um, I, wanted, I wanted to write about the way the world works and the way that con- the conscious man interacts with that world and 
with himself. Uh, and as you alluded to, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, something, something seems to have, you will hear the deep <laughs> in, inhale there, something in our culture seems to have reached a tipping point uh, in our culture, in our collective consciousness, where people are becoming distressingly polarized and uh, hysterical, <laughs> if not basket cases. And um, I, I want to make sense of that for uh, modern men, for conscious men, and how they can interact with this world, this uh, post-COVID world that they find themselves in, uh, so that it informs them and so that they can mold and adapt that world to suit the unfolding of their true nature. Um, on top of that, you know, my goal is to help men and women so that they can relate with each other in functional ways. Um, and quite honestly, that means telling the truth about how they are behaving dysfunctionally. Um, and these truths can sometimes be hard to hear. Uh, plus, I, I, want to, I want to bring people together. I want to unite ordinary people who are not part of the matrix to um, reclaim their lives and um, struggle with each other to create better conditions for the human animal to exist in. Uh, so that's, that's in a nutshell why I'm writing this book and there's stuff in there. It, it's very extensive. There's stuff about psychology, human development, human nature, human consciousness, mental health, societal norms, pretty much everything that can help or hinder conscious men in the modern age. Um, so, it's a long book. It's a seven or eight hour read. And uh, uh, it's written for men who choose to be well informed about their lives. Because most of the time, you know, as men, we, we wing it. We, we go through life and stuff comes up and we deal with it in the here and now uh, without potentially having, uh, potentially having made alternative plans or um judged ahead of time how to react to certain situations. So this book is uh, pointing out to the conscious man where the most where the most serious and major pitfalls and obstacles lie in his life and uh, so that he can be well prepared to meet them. Michael, you've touched on a number of different areas and I can just imagine a lot of the listeners would want further context in these because these are really controversial topics you know things yes. like you know wages and inequality uh whether there's uh, you know rates of sexual assault men obviously being uh, understood as being primary perpetrators and my understanding that is that is uh, uh, uh what what is happening um allegations uh, and and how society deals with these things obviously you've mentioned right. men's suicide rates you know continue yeah, yeah. to go up i I'm not sure whether that's the same for, for women as well. There's this kind of media polarization of terms like white male and, right, um, right. you know, these, these really big, big sort of topics. Part of my job in, in, in interviewing is, is to kind of push these buttons a little bit further and, and find out some, mm. some more because they, these are hard topics to tackle. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about uh, some of those and how you've approached them and, and what your research, you know, what, what you've, you've found 
um, has, has, has shown up um, because there's, there, 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 there's such a lot of um, bias, I think, in all of these spaces. And, and I think we're all just trying to grapple with these and make our own minds up. So I think having different voices is, is useful. Yes. Yes. I mean, I actually, I, I go for it. I, I really go for the hot button issues and talk about such things as uh, toxic masculinity. Of course, we've all heard of that. Uh, we've all heard of male privilege. Uh, we've heard of patriarchy. We've heard of um, the wage gap, uh, gender studies. And I talk a lot about gender studies because um, it's important to realize that um, gender studies in colleges is not actually, um, I would say, a serious um, or, or an authentic and, and uh, um, integrated uh, form of uh, study. Um, it's more of a, um, a ideology mill for the feminist movement. And of course, we can dive into that if you're interested. I, I go into that quite a bit in the book because uh, feminism is actually setting the standard for what it is to be a man in this day and age. And a lot of the things that feminism is um, insisting upon are actually detrimental to the full expression of a man's masculinity. Uh, you know, I touch, I go into, uh, as I referred to earlier, I go into the divorce and family courts and domestic violence and how domestic violence is actually perceived to be predominantly and significantly male perpetrated, but where in, when in fact it is the, uh, there is a symmetry in, in how the genders uh, commit acts of uh, domestic violence, uh, which perhaps your listeners will be surprised to hear, but the research bears this out. Um, and of course, you know, there's the Me Too movement. Uh, the Me Too movement has been instrumental in uh, talking to men, insisting that men walk through life uh, essentially on uh, walking on eggshells. You know, there, there is a, a very, very strong uh, magnifying glass being aimed directly over men and masculine conduct in this world and uh, uh, the uh, claims of sexual abuse that that women have been um, bringing into the light over the last uh, few years uh, hasn't been completely helpful um, and I think the the Me Too movement started out uh, pretty much with good intentions and was then hijacked for the uh, a feminist narrative, um, and uh, and then of course you know we get in, I get into stuff about rape culture as well, specifically about college rape culture, but rape rape culture in general, uh, and the, you know there's there's so much <laughs> there's so much that I talk about these these are the hot button issues, and uh, uh, you know the the first chapter on the book is devoted to um feminism it's about why why do i focus on feminism because to most people when they consider feminism they they consider feminism to be a movement for equality equality of the sexes and you know i i was a feminist a male feminist for 30 years of my life and i believed firmly that uh feminism and the battles that feminism uh, the feminist movement was waging was in service to a fairer and kinder world. And uh, I believed that that was possible, that once the inequalities between the sexes had been addressed, that this fairer kinder world uh, might well be possible. So I, I cared about women's issues and I still care about women's issues today. And 
Um, I'm certainly not anti-woman. Um, I am, I have to say that I, I place an emphasis on men and women treating each other with compassion and kindness and respect. And my interest is how, and this is the conversation I want to start. How do, how do we produce a culture which fosters well-adjusted human beings, well-adjusted men and women? Um, you know, there, there came a time when I, uh, I, I saw the light. I, I, I discovered and I felt conned by feminism, which presented desirable rights for women, but absolutely and singularly failed to talk about any kind of responsibility that uh, women might have, which would have contributed to social inequality or um, if uh, what and if they had any obligations themselves to society or to men. There, there was no conversation within the feminist movement about any shadow aspects regarding themselves. So I, I, I view feminism, nowadays I view feminism very harshly, but I, I remain pro-woman. And uh, of course, um, many What's of the difference there? What's the difference? Well, the difference is that feminism is not actually about equality. And that's the point I'm trying to make. It presents itself as a social good in a way that's absolutely masterful, uh, in a way that makes invisible and insidious the harms that it does. And it can do this because, you know, as a society, we privilege uh, the assumption that femininity and by extension feminism is inherently full of goodness and beauty. Uh, and what this does is it, it, it indicates a presumed su moral superiority. Uh, and by contrast, of course, men are just toxic ragbags. Um, we're inherently problematic. Uh, and uh, certainly with modern feminists, the, the claim is that men, uh, and I, I, I substantiate this in the book, men have to be tamed and subdued so as to reverse all the, the historical past um, transgressions that they've committed against female kind, and then basically to step off the plate and allow the, the future to be female. When we talk about topics being hijacked by feminism, is, is that an extreme uh, side <laughs> of feminism? It, it's almost like uh, in, in so many ways, I think, most people could appreciate some of the claims that we hear on television of being yes. kind of just wild, you know, and, 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 that, and that's because usually the media selects wild claims. They're, they're highly polarizing. They're, they're really small, small bites. There, there isn't a sophisticated conversation yes. which, which allows for maybe the voice of, of, uh, feminism to have a wider conversation it, it, it's almost like it's crammed into a really short bite size to try and catch something and whether that's coming from people who you know believe in feminism or whether it's the media just saying oh let's let's just get some clickbait uh it, it's really hard to 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 untangle these things because it just feels like it's hard to know whose voice is this when when I see some things in the media, you know, it, sometimes it's, 
there's just some absurd claims that I, I read about and, and things are just not factual at all. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it's curious. Um, I mean, there are two ways we could, two routes that we could go down here. One is to consider the history of feminism and whether it's always been this way, if it's always uh, been, if it's always attempted to hijack the narrative and to shape masculinity. Uh, but, and we could also talk about, uh, and you're quite right to make this observation, and I, I write about this in the book, and I, it's so important, I put it in my introduction, it's the importance of nuanced understanding. And, you know, certainly um, there are different aspects of feminism. Uh, not all feminists are man-hating misandrists. Uh, the, uh, the, the, I, I identify essentially three different types of feminists. Um, the first are what are considered, uh, what I consider coffee house feminists. And um, these are feminists who are not uh, necessarily malicious towards masculine interests or male interests, but uh, have been misinformed by the feminist movement. Uh, th these, these are the, the, the women and men who um, believe in the notion that men and women should be treated as equals. And this is what most people think of when they hear the term feminism. Uh, most, most men and women who, most women who are fair-minded think of themselves as feminists, as equity feminists. And essentially, you could say that they're coffeehouse feminists who don't feel particularly oppressed um, and you could probably have a conversation with them and make the suggestion that, well, hey, perhaps you're not actually a feminist, but you're more of an equalist or a humanist or an egalitarian instead of, um, you know, focusing on a slightly positive appreciation of the feminine and a slightly less positive appreciation of the masculine. So um, a lot of women are, I would consider, are, are um, equity feminists. At the other end of the spectrum, however, you have what are, what are gender. My apologies, Michael. Yeah, yeah. That, that would have to be the majority. I'm I'm assuming it is the majority, but they're not the most powerful. Sure, uh, sure. The, the, mo the most powerful are, are the gender feminists or the radical feminists, and they are actually the main drivers of the feminist movement in the 21st century. Um, and uh, yeah, I've dug deep into what's called third and fourth wave feminism, and um, unlike coffeehouse feminists, they actually have a set of theories and philosophies specific to radical feminism, which I, I believe uh, are very harmful to the fabric of a harmonious society. And the, these are feminists who uh, willfully and knowingly uh, harbor antagonism towards men and towards this uh, harmonious society. Um, that the and I'll just finish by saying that uh, so I mentioned that there are three types of feminists. Um, you have the equity feminists, the uh, radical feminists, and the third type of feminist is the judicial feminist, and they are the the judges, the lawyers, the law professors who um, are they they operate kind of in the shadows. Not many people really understand or are focused on their activities, but what they do is they litigate change through the legal system as uh, a mechanism of social engineering. And the aim is to advantage or favor women above men. And 
they either get the law changed and where they can't change the law, they change the way the existing law is interpreted. So, so in answer to your question um, is, you know, are, are we being given a, a, an image of feminism, which has been, um, you know, like clickbait feminism, which, which just gets a lot of uh, um, opposition and anger up. And I would say the answer is actually no, that the, the, the case is quite clear that um, the, the agenda of the radical feminists or the gender feminists is actually driving a lot of the social change in society. And, and I find this very troubling. Yeah, it, so it sounds like the uh, equity feminists, if we use that, 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 that term, which is really the majority of, of women, and there are men as well in, in, in that group, uh, are quite happy to have those nuanced conversations and, and look at the topic and, and explore it in much greater depth and, you know, do some, I suppose, conscious analysis or, or at least exploration about the hard topics, you know, whether it's about wages or whether it's about, you know, uh, you know what, what the word white male privilege means um, both today and historically, you know, how domestic violence might, might show up and so on. There's traditional feminists uh, that you describe, which is people who believe in um, trying to create greater fairness, but have more of a, I suppose, a say in, in, in being able to do that. So they, they advocate within, I suppose, you know, putting strong argument together and, 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 you know, lobbying for, you know, what they believe, you know, to be improved changes in, in you know, whether it be legislation or law or, or how we do our culture and the like. And then there's the, the loudest voice, which is the radical uh, feminist that, you know, I suppose have the biggest megaphone. Um, they, they, they attract the most attention. I mean, I, I know that everyone uh, that I, you know, no, no has, has heard of, of, of the arguments that, they, that the radicals sort of hold it. That's almost been historically always the case, hasn't it? It certainly has. Yeah. Uh, well, just to pick up on what you were saying about uh, equity feminists having conscious conversations about these hot topic issues. And I, I would actually say that they are having unconscious conversations. Um, they're getting the narrative from the gender feminists without consciously doing the work to identify whether it is correct or not. And quite honestly, I was like that too. I was a feminist for 30 years and I unconditionally accepted all feminist talking points, all uh, attempts for legislation which favored um, feminist directed uh, actions. And I did so uncritically. Uh, and, you know, that's on me. So um, I, I would say that uh, the, the, because there is this, uh, because feminism is a mass movement and because most women identify themselves as feminists uh, in, a, in a particular sense, the, and if they're largely unconscious and following the directives of a very small group of feminists, then their impact is, is therefore quite great. Uh, whether they know it or not, they are uh, propagating uh, unhelpful uh, policies and procedures and uh, legislation and social, just social ways of being that are unhelpful, both to men and women. 
And I should say that this is this is not about me trying to uh, puff up men's issues. I actually want to create a world which is uh, where both men and women can look to each other and be fulfilled by each other. And I do believe that feminism is doing a disservice to women and is in fact making women less safe in the world, which I, I talk about quite a lot in the book. It's almost, and, and, and my apologies here because I don't want to be uh, changing your works, but it's almost the book potentially could be modern masculinity for the conscious person, being that someone who could be informed uh, and think about these concepts um, by actually making their own informed uh, exploration and decision rather than just swallowing whatever's sort of the loudest or almost prominent in the media. I mean, you know, it's something that I've, I've grappled with in my mind and I don't think there's ever an answer is how do we go out and equalize, you know, many jobs in this world, you know? So for example, um, let me just use something, and this is obviously going to be a bit, bit controversial. It's going to be hard um, to, to, to describe this. Let's say if we want, let's say 50% of our police force um, to be represented by women. Yes. Um, at the moment, I don't believe that's the case. I think, I think there's more men um, in those roles. But there has to be a conversation about why is there more men? Um, you know, is this something that men are a little bit more uh, attracted to? Do people self-select in and out of these types of, of uh, you know, positions? You know, why are women overrepresented in, say, let's say, psychology or in the helping professions, you know, nursing and the like? There seems to be uh, something going on that, that's not necessarily attached to just you know wages uh, but rather we 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 tend to be kind of self-selecting or or at least on an average um you know population basis we're attracted to different things yeah uh, there's a lot to unpack there um so i write about this there's there's a big debate between the left and the right there seems to always be this big debate between equality of opportunity and equality of outcome and um on the left uh the consensus is basically that they want equality of outcome and the right basically want equality of opportunity and uh my contention is that we have neither and that what we have are horribly distorted versions of both um so in terms of uh, the equalization of the sexes and how women uh, have made inroads into employment, which were traditionally masculine, uh, I point out the fact that the feminist movement only identifies those um, um, male dominated professions which are uh, high status. So uh, more female po politicians, more uh, females in big business and so on. Um, essentially, they, they want the, the, an equalization in the numbers of women uh, at, uh, in the apex jobs. Um, and uh, they're in favor of, of what you can call equality of outcome. So they want these to be 50-50, but um, th there's no, um, no scrutiny placed on the fact that uh, they're ignoring uh, those jobs which are male dominated, which are at the bottom of the social rung. So um, there are more considerably more pest control workers who are male, uh, more 
grounds maintenance workers, more loggers, more crab fishermen, more, um, more refuse collectors. And strangely, you don't hear feminists arguing for equality of outcome in those professions. Uh, they, they have no interest in more women in those areas. They're not calling for social changes in that respect. So feminism caters only to the upper class or upper middle class women, uh, elite women. And those women, um, uh, I, I would say, well, let me, let me dial back a little bit. So I make the contention, uh, and, and this is, uh, again, another hot button issue, that job preferences are very strongly linked to human biology. Um, and when given equal opportunity to select a job or a career of their own choosing, uh, men and women go for certain professions. So men tend to go for jobs which are centered around things, objects, things, and women go for jobs which are centered around people, um, you know, and networking and connections. Uh, so on the one hand, you have the systemizing professions, and on the other hand, you have the empathizing professions. And there have been some studies which um, certainly the ones that I pull up in the book uh, come out of Norway, which are, are absolutely fascinating because Norway is a very, very equalized society. In fact, it's a, a highly, um, it's, it's, so, it's a social democracy where feminism has led the way for many, many decades. So what you see is that men and women have equal opportunities to go for any job they want with no barriers of entry based on gender or sex. And yet what we're seeing in Norway are most women, most, most of the nurses in Norway, 90% of them are women and 90% of the engineers in Norway are male, despite both sexes having the same opportunities and no barriers of entry to either profession based on sex. So it seems that um, given our, given the given equal opportunities and with our predisposition inherent within us based on our sex, we tend to gravitate to certain types of jobs. So the radical viewpoint disregards those sorts of, I suppose, positions and just argues a you know, fairness across the board that, it, you know, all positions should be, I don't know, 50, 50. Is that, is that what's being said or, or yeah, you know, is, is yeah. it more? Uh, they really want a, uh, they want a society based on equal participation across all domains. Um, and my contention is that would be to deny, deny our humanity. And it, it's not going to serve either sex if that's the case. And I'm, I'm not arguing for a return to the 1950s where you know women are chained to the kitchen and men go out and uh, um, slay the dragon. Um, we need to have a conversation about this, but we, we, we need to have a conversation about what it is to be a human being, what it is to be in one's masculine essence or feminine essence and what that means. Because the, the studies clearly indicate that there are some powerful drives within us that direct us in certain directions in life, which are, which are not, uh, we're not identical to each other. Um, so uh, I, I would say that um, 
that uh, I was going to my my sorry my I'm going down my brain is going down so many different avenues. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say that we need to have this conversation and you know there are some women who are going to want to be engineers for instance who have a passion to be an engineer but need a little help there are some men who are going to want to be nurses and have a passion to be a, be a nurse and, but they need a little help now the right is basically saying you know there's a quality of opportunity just go and compete for those jobs and the left is saying no we will definitely make you an engineer we definitely want you to be a nurse or whatever and I think that, again, it comes back to nuance. There needs to be a middle ground where, um, in terms of helping people achieve their own potential within themselves, I look upon it as the same sort of uh, proposition we have for people who are disabled and um, where, you know, you have equity hiring practices, which would mean that you would have two candidates of equal merit and you would choose the one which would allow that, whatever it is, the school, the business, the government department to accomplish its equity mandate by hiring that particular candidate that has belonged to a minority group that has been historically discriminated against. And I think that's, that's pretty reasonable. That's pretty, pretty reasonable to my, to my mind. And, but it, it, what we have right now is that there's been this mindset that has been developing, which absolutely positively favors favors the minority applicant and women are considered a minority even though they're 50 percent of the population but um, the minority applicant is given the job at the expense of the more qualified person uh, this has been happening for the last decade or two often with um, you know some considerable or subtle pressure from um, senior staff members and what's been happening is that you have, and you can observe it, there there's been this diminished competency across many fields of, um, of life, across many fields of um, careers. Um, and to be quite honest, I think it is a little insulting to women by suggesting that they don't have to be any better than their uterus and they just have to be female. You know, ideally, what we want is a world which holds women and other minorities to a standard of competency, rather than just affording them the top jobs they desire and the special dispensations just because they are women. Um, I, I'm all for helping women reach a standard of excellency. Um, I'm, I'm for helping every, anybody reach that standard so that they can become the person they want to be. But simply favoring women because of a perceived historical slight, I think is doing a disservice both to them and to men. Michael, is, is this fear of the, the radical voice unfounded? I mean, I, <laughs> I look around and I think to myself, you know, if I, if I were to take 50 of you know, the women in my life and I had a conversation with them, and I don't think I'm a particularly special or, or, or um, you know, interesting um, outlier by any means I, I don't know if any of my 50 friends would hold the uh, the you know very rigid inflexible uh, uh, you know perspective um, around you know uh, strict equality um, I, I think that would probably voice an opinion more like yours where we kind of say look you know there are occasions where people might need to be propped up 
um, you know, in a, in, in a social world, in a human world where, where we're humane and considerate and compassionate, that's what we do. We get, we have a program called social security and, and it doesn't matter what, what gender you are or age or anything. We, we, we try and support, support those at the same time. We, you know, maybe there is a little bit of a, uh, a leaning towards things potentially may have been um, not so equal in the, in the past and there needs to be a conversation to explore or address those things. Um, so maybe more people who need that little, you know, uh, prompt, uh, support will, will, will get there. I'm not sure if anyone I know is, is holding that rigidity. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. What, what do you think the, the, the average, um, uh, and I don't, know, I don't know, even know what average means, but you know, the, uh, an average regular woman feels, or even man who, who believes that they um, you know, prescribes to, to being feminist. What, what, what do they think the average person? Yeah. Again, I'm writing this for the younger male, the, the, the millennial male, sort of like the 25 to 35 year old. And, you know, I'm a generation and a half outside of his experience. And in my world, and probably in your world as well, I, I would agree with you. I'm, I'm not meeting that sort of um, antagonism or narrative. But in their world, it's very, very different. It's very different. And this is something I, I needed to document. Um, and it's not just the attitudes that uh, modern women are holding, it's actually the real world implications um, and the attempts to favor women above men being driven by, by the feminist movement. So, you know, one thing you'll hear about is the wage gap. And, you know, President Obama has spoken about the wage gap. Uh, a, a Biden campaigned on reducing the wage gap and you know, there's the wage, every, every, it's, it's like one of these uh, viral memes that keeps being spread around the internet. And you, you read it so many times or you hear it so many times and you start to believe it. You know, if, if, if everybody's talking about it, it must be true. And quite frankly, it, it is not true. There is not a wage gap. Uh, what there is, is an earnings gap. Uh, men earn more than women but they're the way they receive the same wages. And essentially um, feminists understand this, but they, they don't pay that any mind because what they do is uh, the way they calculate the wage gap is to add up all the money, all, all the, the wages that men make, throw it into one big pot and take the average. Then they take all the wages that women receive, throw it into that one big pot and take that average. And what materializes is um, uh, a difference like it's 77 cents on the dollar that, that women receive um, compared to men. And in, the, in that very simplistic way, this wage gap materializes. Um, but the thing is, uh, there are so many different variables uh, that are not being considered, just this very simplistic, um, this very simplistic calculation. Uh, so for instance, you know, women, they tend to leave the labor force to have a child or to look after their parents when they become ill or old. Um, they select lower paid employment. Women generally select lower paid employment but for lifestyle reasons. Um, you know, teachers and nurses and the like are, are lower paid. Um, they don't usually go for the, the STEM careers. Um, they value, when women take a job, certainly in the USA, they value non-wage benefits more than men do, you know, the insurance, um, the health benefits and so on. Uh, 
And when you take all of that, they earn less overall. Um, and the point I make in the book is that logically, if, if women were doing the same job as men for less money, there would be absolutely no incentive for companies to hire men. Who would do that? Who would hire a man when they can hire a woman for 70 cents on the dollar? Uh, you know, companies are not stupid. They, they, they would definitely hire a, a woman with similar skills. So why would they pay a sex premium for a man? The only explanation would be that, you know, um, and I'm being facetious here, companies are, are unconcerned about losing money and are deliberately paying men more <laughs> because of like this commitment to advantaging men over women. Uh, is sure. that is you know so that that is not reality i mean take the shareholders of the company so forget about the the ceos of the company what about the shareholders would they be okay with um the hiring practices of the company whereas otherwise they might ex uh, claim or expect profit maximization so that they can be paid their dividends you know it doesn't match the real world and yet you hear again and again and again and again and again the wage gap the wage gap the wage gap now, unless, I mean, I, I've been sunk in this for, for quite some time uh, doing the research and so on. Most people are not that interested. They, they, that there is this expectation, this uh, assumption and credibility given to the feminist movement. And they believe it. They believe that if feminists are screaming about the wage gap, there must bloody well be a wage gap. Why would there not be? Why would they scream about something that was false? Michael, you, you, you raise a really strong point there. And if I could just pick up from something what you've said just, just a, a moment ago as well, you wrote this book for a younger audience. It's the mo you know, modern masculinity. And I think that's probably where I'm out of touch. I, just, just reflecting as you're talking about it, you know, I, I know at the moment in Australia, there's this big campaign uh, around you know, sexual, uh, sorry, um, well, both sexual and, and, and domestic violence against women. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, every, every night there's a show on domestic violence. There's a show yeah. on, on um, you know, sexual, uh, sexual assault. And, and, you know, it's publicized strongly whenever there's an allegation against someone. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of like everywhere. And I, I didn't think about it because I, I just filter so much of this stuff out of right. my brain. I'm, I, 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 kind of um, try and be a bit more objective and kind of consider, well, you know, I don't have any of the information. It's all, uh, it's all just little bite, bite sort of snippets that I'm, I'm not privy to the information, but maybe the, the, the modern man or young man does not have those faculties to go out and, you know, decipher or, or the modern woman, uh, you know, young, young people don't have those faculties to, right. Uh, you know, to, to, to read through the lines and question this stuff. And, and, yeah. and what you're saying is we need to, to be the conscious man right. person and, and start questioning. Um, well, in actual fact, question everything, question right. whether it be the yes. um, feminist that, that, that asks for equity or is radical or traditional. It doesn't matter. Just question all of them and find, uh, have, have a deeper conversation, do your research, think about it some more rather than being an echo chamber. Yeah. Because young yeah. people at the moment are, are just absolutely being hammered by, by you know, the, the, these really kind of 
you know, extreme views. And it's not just from feminism. It's just, just in general, it's, it, it's kind of these, these, if I can call them mad polarizing yeah. um, viewpoints that are extreme, it doesn't matter what we're talking about, you know, it could be about, you know, um, uh, religion or something, you know, I mean, these days in Australia, I think, you know, most young men are probably rejecting, you know, spirituality, religion, you know, as, as oh, young really? persons, at least on the average. Oh, right. Yeah, a lot of things to touch upon there. Um, yeah, so we, we accept on faith the information that's presented to us. And uh, um, this is the second half of my book. I, I go into the, uh, there, there is a war on consciousness being waged, a war on sense-making, um, uh, which I, I get into outside. This is not about feminism. This is just about the broader social forces within society, which are attempting to shape our consciousness and our perspectives so as to uh, control the agenda and to have Can the sort of... Can you talk about that a bit, a bit more in terms of what that war is, how, how we are being shaped, especially our yeah. young, young generation? Absolutely. Not just our young generation. Um, well, everybody. Yeah, too, my <laughs> Good point. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, maybe this is not so new to you and me, but my contention is that there are countervailing forces which want to control you and do not want you to become more conscious, to see things with greater clarity, to see reality as it really is. And then potentially to do something about it you know um the What's interesting uh, there i'll just just jump in my apologies yeah. for interrupting but it just shows how ageist i just was you know it's almost <laughs> like oh the young people you know they don't know anything you know the, the, yeah it's almost you know the dumb ones you know it, it's 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 interesting how you know there isn't a, a faith in in my language in in my thought that that young people can do this when in actual fact you know they're they're they're, they're the next generation and they're, they're yeah. you know, uh, very bright extremely bright and and probably more equipped for the modern world than i will be right so it's it's just fascinating just to pick up on that. <laughs> yeah it's curious because uh, we talk about the dumbing down of america I'm, i live in america so we talk about the dumbing down of america but of course, you know, when did that start? When did they start dumbing us down? And I'm sure that your generation and mine have been dumbed, has been dumbed down to quite a large extent, even prior, even to prior generations. So, you know, by what metric do we judge ourselves in terms of how conscious we are, how aware we are, how intelligent we are, how good we are at making sense of the world around us? You know, free-thinking individuals don't fit the agenda of the control system. And these control systems that are in place are meant to, I believe, repress the full realization of our humanity. Um, you know, that the paradigm we live under requires us not to think too hard about these control mechanisms. And, you know, all that's needed is um, functional, obedient students or workers uh, with only as much intelligence to perform the tasks that have been assigned to them. You know, Pink Floyd wrote that, uh, uh, recorded the album, um, uh, uh, and I forget the name of the album now, but they talk about bricks in the wall. And it's, that's what they want. They just want bricks in the wall. Um, you know, I, I come from a very progressive background, and I, a lot of my book is, is class, has a class perspective. I, I view the world in terms of a ruling class. Uh, 
and um, and the rest of us. Uh, and when you look around us, when you see the disparities in wealth um, and how the wealthy own the disproportionate uh, resources and have claimed them from Mother Earth, you know, this basically, uh, I, I tend to accept my own bias or uh, story, if you like, about how the world is constructed. It's constructed for the rich and not ordinary people. Um, so my contention is that a conscious man, when if he's, to, if he's to come into the fullness of his being as a conscious man, he doesn't just have to do his inner work. He also has to contest with the control systems put in place by the ruling elite that seek to repress the expression of his true nature. You know, it's, it's in the natural order of human beings to evolve their consciousness, I believe. You know, we, um, yeah, to become more and more conscious. It, it's how we're built. You know, we're built to become more wise, more intelligent, more aware, more knowing, more, more loving. And, uh, you know, it, 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 as we do that, in doing that, we meet the control system, which fights back. And um, so uh, I'll just say a little bit about what that control system is. And the one example I'll give right now is, is for instance, the mass media. Um, the, the, the ruling elite's greatest success has been in molding each individual's perceptual frame of reference through the mass media. And what they do is they transfer narratives to the human mind via mass media. And that gives us a cultural paradigm, which um, Carl Jung used this description. Uh, he, he talked about mass man, M-A-S-S, -S, mass man. And uh, essentially, mass man is the unconscious man, the man that just goes around living his life, not really questioning his reality. And he, so that the, uh, the cultural paradigm in that case gives the mass man a blueprint, which he believes is his own creation, but which has actually been constructed for him, for him to buy into. Um, and we can see it all around us. We see it in our children. You know, our children... And this is, you know, I, I was a teacher for several years and it breaks my heart to see how children receive distorted social programming through the educational system. Uh, they receive it through their parents as well in form of, you know, the kind of generational indoctrination that they have received. But more than that, kids receive um, media through their devices, through their computers, their, their cell phones and um, their spirits become progressively corrupted by the narratives that are fed to them. Um, they are, uh, you know, the internet, for instance, the internet has been, it's been, it's been a double-edged sword. It, it, it's been the key instrument for consciousness raising and uh, the workings of the world. You know, we now have, in fact, in our back pockets, access to pretty much all the information that's ever existed. In our back pocket, we can access that information should we choose to that's incredible when you think about it but the thing is that does not serve the interests of the ruling elite so behind that have come the efforts to control and corrupt and surveil us and regulate us and censor social platforms like youtube and twitter and facebook and go after net neutrality and um and all the while, the, the digital media that has been algorithmically designed 
to feed certain narratives to our children, I'm sure is 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 uh, you know we're we're saving up a lot of corruption for the future in terms of how we uh, meet dysregulated human beings. Well, it's interesting because you know all of my views are on the internet and they just keep getting repeated to me because as I do my searches, it doesn't matter what topic I'm looking at. Uh, these searches keep coming back to me. So if I'm looking for, I like the outdoors, if I'm looking for camping gear, uh, you know, when I go to to YouTube, a whole lot of camping stuff comes up and I seem to like that. So I seem to watch that and therefore more comes up. But if I look at some sort of, I suppose, uh, you know, uh, political viewpoint, the same thing continues to, to display back to me. And so, it ends up being this really strong, narrow view of the world that, it, that yeah. it appears to me as though I'm right, that I that what I'm thinking others are thinking, when in actual fact, it's just, you know, others like me are thinking and, right. and I'm just being displayed them and they're capturing my attention so I'm more likely to click on it. And it, it just goes round and round. It's not really... Uh, allowing me to go out and see greater breadth, you know, psychological flexibility to then have the ability to, you know, to respond to the world, you know, from multiple perspectives rather than just a repeated set of, of, of viewpoints. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. We, I mean, as modern, modern man, modern women, we essentially live in an echo chamber of our own belief system, our own interests. And, very rarely get to examine arguments from different perspectives. So what we see around us, and this is why the world is so polarized, what we see is is confirmation bias on steroids, um, where people are in their own tribes and actively seeking to confirm what they already believe and condemn uh, contrary information to that belief system and attempting to actively discredit um, what they think is, uh, you know, hostile opposing evidence coming from, uh, from, from others with a capital O. And, um, you know, they, they um, I, I mean, I, it's so difficult. You know, most everybody, pretty much everybody has a political position. You have yours, I have mine. And uh, what we see around us is uh, are people at war with each other over their perception of reality. Um, reaching for an understanding of objective reality as opposed to subject, uh, our individual subjective perspective, that requires extending our perspective and perception wide enough to synthesize other coherent perspectives um, and realities. So to continually question our own perspectives is troubling to the human organism. We have to come face to face with stuff which is painful. Either from within us, we have to come face to face with our inner resistances, or we have to come face to face with other people who are challenging us, confronting us, perhaps giving us the message that we are in some way wrong or bad or shameful or a, a white man, <laughs> you know, and we we try and avoid condemnation, uh, and we do that by seeking out our own tribe, our own little corner of the internet, 
where everybody thinks the way that we do. Um, you know, in a more social, in a more enlightened environment, you know, we would be living in a society where where tolerance for disagreement uh, would be the norm, and you know, where we would recognize our differences um, and find common ground between us, because. You know, we, none of us, you know, there, there are 7 billion people of us on this planet and no two of us have the same opinion about anything under the sun. No two blades of grass are the same. Um, so how do we live with each other? If, if we all have our own version of reality, all 7 billion of us, how the hell do we live with each other? Do we go to war with each other or do we find a mechanism by which we can take each other's best interests as our own, as important as our own best interests. So Nesh, you know, if you have a particular perspective and I have a particular perspective, how can I fully understand where you're coming from? And rather than try and win an argument or win a political objective, make sure that you're not hurt in the process, that your best interests are cared for in a compassionate way, in a wise way, that we create a society where um, we don't try and um, outcompete each other. Uh, you know, you have left against right, and you know um, the environmental movement against uh, you know the people who want to direct the economy more towards extraction of uh, fossil fuels or whatever hydro hydrocarbons. You know, so many different uh, cliques and aspects of society are warring with each other we're tearing ourselves apart as a species. And my contention is that we are, if not at end times right now, we're precipitously close to it. And if we don't do something, if we don't find better ways of relating with each other, talking with each other, collaborating with each other for the social good, for the good of each other, not just taking care of number one, then we are facing our demise as a species. Um, there's no getting around this. And I, I, I do talk about this in the book because to ignore it is to embrace the possibility of failure. And I don't want to do that. Uh, I, I have a passion for um, the maximization and the optimization of our human nature. I, I, I love the human being. I, I don't love dysfunctional human beings. I don't love uh, the way we relate to each other as human beings. But in terms of what we are capable of as human beings. Um, should we have, you know, the wisest teachers, the, the best environment that we grow up in, the most coherent, intelligent parents who direct us with love rather than coming from their own agenda, um, who, who bring us up to be who we are, not who they want us to be. So many, so many currents, so many social and cultural currents that we need to contest with in order to unshackle the human being. Michael, summarizing some, some of that is, is, and please jump in and, and correct, correct me where I've gone astray a bit here, is for the modern masculine man, part of their responsibility is to, to listen, uh, but also ask questions, mm. then listen again, maybe ask some more questions before they make up their mind. And, and in some sense, when you've made up your mind, don't hold that tightly either. Continue to still seek 
objective, uh, well-researched or, or, or logical, reasonable uh, means in which way to, to, to measure opinions or um, perspectives to try and make sense of the world. And, and, and that could also mean emotions and, and, and feelings as well. Mm. So you can find a, a space that you can live by or live from. Yes. To, to, to not be, I suppose, a product of the social current, but rather be your own product. Yes, yes, very well put. And in fact, I think uh, younger men are better at it than our generation, to be quite mm. honest. They're, they're much more in touch with their feminine aspect. Uh, this is also created, I mean, th- there are pros and cons to everything. Um, uh, modern men are, hmm, how shall I describe this? Compared to the boomer generation, and taken as a whole, men's ability to contribute their energies to the world has been in decline for decades. Uh, They have um, a diminished ability to uh, earn a good wage. You know, they have these levels of debt and they try, you know, men, well, I should say that masculine, let's just define masculinity pretty quickly. Masculinity is an energy which is penetrative, penetrative, very hard word to say, it penetrates. Masculinity is a penetrative energy which is outwardly directed. It's a force which alters and develops and modifies and recasts its environment for good or bad. And its opposite, femininity, receives and surrenders and flows with change, wisely or unwisely. So in today's world, um, that penetrative energy is, it's very difficult to express it because men express that energy through their passionate endeavors. Um, and if they're chronically under-resourced by an anemic economy, high cost of living, um, many of them are still living with their parents, even if they don't want to, because um, either, but well, because the, the, the costs of housing is so high, and also because they lack a confidence in their own spirit of independence. Um, you know, that coupled with this anti-male bias in society, men are becoming more and more passive, whether they want to or not. And they've begun to internalize the idea that their, their masculinity, their, their, their very maleness is harmful to the world. It's unhelpful and unwanted. So, you know, yes, they're very good at listening, active listening and giving space to uh, certainly their their peers and to the women around them. Um, The demand is that they step off the plate so that women can rise and meet their potential. So they're very sensitive to that perspective as well. But it's at the expense of their masculinity that this passivity that they now inhabit within them, you know, they don't nowadays that they don't derive their sense of manhood from other men because many of them have never met uh, a male role model. You know, uh, a large number of of boys are growing up in single parent households, most of which have a mother rather than a father. Um, Most of the teachers they encounter in school are female. Um, They're becoming and I would say this is both a good thing and a bad thing, but they're becoming softer in nature over time, more compliant, more accommodating. And 
partly this is due to a changing world. You know, we, we, we don't have to go and hunt our own food anymore. We don't have to go and chop firewood and, and build a fire and, you know, all the things that required that sort of masculine um, uh, intent, uh, you know, a strong man uh, who would grapple with perhaps a harsh environment. You know, nowadays we can go to the supermarket and buy that meat. Uh, we can turn up the thermostat and increase the heat in the home. We don't have to build a fire. Uh, we can. We don't have to saddle a horse and ride it. We can just jump in a car. Much easier. Um, so men are becoming softer just because the world is changing. It's not the world is not as hard as it used to be. So men don't need to be as hard as they used to be, and they're becoming softer. And that means that they are finding it very difficult to come into relationship with their masculinity, with um, you know the what it means to be masculine, to be directed and to be strong and focused and rigorous and grounded um, and um, uh, discerning and self-disciplined, all of those things. Yeah. Michael, there's, there, there's something about that, that real strong masculinity state. I went on a four-wheel drive trip recently and, and, and my friend and I got stuck in the middle of the bush and it was 10 p.m. and uh, you know, we tried everything to, to, to get out of this ditch. We were bogged. Um, we had to use the winch and we're snatching from one vehicle to another. I blew awesome. two tires and I was still trying to drag my other friend's vehicle out and we're out with shovels and there was mud and, you know, it was 1am at that, at that stage. And uh, it, it was absolutely exhilarating. You know, yes. at the end yes. of it, we, we got out after four hours and I haven't felt <laughs> so alive. Um, right. I, I remember, exactly. We got him out and, and, and we both got out of our cars and we, you know, hugged and embraced and we, you know, smacked each other a big high five and we screamed and we're like, yes, we've done it. We're like just men, like real primal men. And, and it wasn't with harming anyone or anything like that. We were right, just trying to get right. out of, you know, problem solving, you know, we, we were down yes. and out and it was, and it was exciting. I, I haven't felt so alive for a long time. Oh, and so good. To do more of it. It was, it was really a powerful moment. And, and that's, right. that's that masculinity that you talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's such a good point. Um, and how do we come into contact with it? Because you see, um, I don't know if you've read the book. Uh, I forget what it's called now. Um, what was it called? Uh, the uh, not the power of myth. It was the other one. It was uh, the king. Oh, it was a king warrior magician lover. No, and that's um, an excellent book. It's uh, I think Robert Moore was the author of that book, but he and his co-author wrote about uh, traditional rites of passage um, that indigenous peoples teach uh, yes, a voice yes. and how to become a man and um you know they they and i, I again i think this is nuanced um the authors of the book saw that as a, a wholly good thing where where the, there is this transition from boyhood to manhood and the rites of passage were oftentimes where the boy would be facing some um situation where they potentially were in a, a life-threatening situation or where they were in enormous pain. Um, you might be familiar with the Sundancer uh, Native Americans who uh, insert eagle claws into their pectoral mu muscles and hang from a rope. And uh, this is a rite of passage. 
Um, in South America, there's there are certain tribes which um, place the boy on a nest of fire ants, and he has to endure the pain for as long as possible without complaint. And th these things are, are meant to uh, remove the boy and bring the man into the being. Uh, I have some concern about that because what, what these rites of passage do is they teach the boy how to, they do two things. They teach the boy how to dissociate. And as you know, as a, a therapist yourself, you'll know what that means and how to ignore his body. And that is the root of trauma. Um, they, they also, um, they also help the boy to see himself as disposable as to being of less value uh, to women. You know, he, uh, a lot of uh, the male programming over in history has been about uh, procreation, protection, and provision, uh, and also um, disposability. So our role as men is to protect and provide for, for women and tribe and family, and if necessary, um, to suffer and have our lives taken from us in, in seeking to do that. We have, you know, we sacrifice ourselves in wars by the millions, quite happily, many times, you know. Think of the millions that died in the trenches in World War I uh, because they were, uh, because uh, this was in service of, of family, women, and country. Uh, and this sort of, this, this concept of disposability uh, is actually invisible to most people, yet it's, it's in the warp and weft of society. Uh, and we don't realize it. Um, so the, the, the rites of passage essentially teach the boy to be disposable, to think of himself as disposable and to protect the tribe, even at the cost of his own life. Um, but yes, there is this, this thrill of being a man, of coming into one's power, of being there to stand up and fight the good fight, whether it's against a, a machine <laughs> stuck in a ditch or uh, you know, uh, hiking the Appalachian Trail, or uh, you know, go, climbing Mount Everest—all of these things you could consider rites of passage, where we're challenging nature, challenging death, looking death in the face, and shaking our fist at death, and saying, "Just try and take me." It's very much like that. I, as you talk about that, it, so much of that resonates about who I am as a man. This this idea of sacrificing, and maybe that's why I work such strong hours, such large hours, and and uh, you know, and and for me, it's so much of it is is, is tied up to my family. You know that uh, I'm doing this for my wife. I'm doing this for my kids. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that I don't get a thrill from that as well, but maybe because I identify that way i'm right uh, it's kind of like putting yourself in harm's way you know I was, I'm, I'm reading matthew mcconaughey's uh a green oh, light right. book at the moment and Good. he spoke about a you know a rite of passage for him was when a, a um his father gave him an opportunity and he didn't take it to to you know which was to be honest he wasn't honest with his father and his father you know sort of condemned him on on that and that was his opportunity yeah. to be um, to you know, become a man to to, to own up on something, and um, then he spoke about another point where another man put his hand on his father, and uh, you know Matthew, um, you know physically beat this guy up, and uh, and he and he and he spoke about you know 
that's when I became a man in my father's eyes and how important that was. And I'm not suggesting, you know, I'm not encouraging people to, to be violent or anything, but I, I, I appreciate how important it is for a man to get the uh, approval of their father in particular, um, you know, whether it's swinging a hammer and building something or, right. um, you know, doing, doing something, um, you know, that's powerful, strong, you know, maybe sports, kicking a goal. Um, it, yes. There's it, something there. And obviously the nuances between, you know, doesn't need to be physical violence uh, or can be controlled physical violence like sports. Um, There's such different, different, um, you know, worlds and, and require, you know, mm. uh, conversation and clarity around them so that, you know, rites of passage aren't about men learning to be, you know, men through aggression and violence. And maybe that's where there have been times or, you know, society has shown that that has been the case for, for many as well. And we're trying to support those young men to find, and, and older men as well, um, to find a better way to, 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 um, hold their responsibilities yeah yeah um exactly yeah well you talk about uh, violence and aggression and I, I i'd like to make the distinction between the two of them please uh, so i think aggression is is a healthy masculine trait um it is not in itself inherently problematic whereas violence can be violence maybe points to a wounded man um so there's that distinction, and uh, and and one more thing I want to say about um, that rite of passage is that you know we we are born as boys, but we have to claim manhood, and women don't have this same journey. You know, masculinity is generally constantly in pursuit and in constant defense of manhood, because well, th- think of the phrase uh, you've probably heard it. It's probably been said to you, or and certainly has been said to me. But um, be a man. You know, so, so when someone is trying to shame you, they say, be a man. Yes. And, uh, you know, some some men are shamed by both men and women for not being a man, either for not comporting themselves as a man who uh, is exhibiting exhibiting typical masculine traits or uh, um, someone who carries beliefs and values which are at odds with others. Uh, but, you know, you, you never hear the opposite. You never hear the phrase, be a woman. No one has ever said that. No one has ever said, be a woman, because that's, a, and what that suggests to me is that manhood is different from womanhood. Manhood is not automatically granted just by having a virtue of a penis. But womanhood doesn't have to go through that. And, and you know, at any time in a man's life, our masculinity can be challenged. We are constantly in pursuit of that manhood uh it's permanent it's profoundly impermanent yeah and maybe women get it in in you know from the concept of you know be ladylike and i don't know if that's a term that's used anymore Um, (laughs) but just 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 touching on the rites of passage one of my professional idols uh stephen hayes uh i i I remember just recently reading uh, an email that he sent through talking about uh our our responsibility these days you know the the the, to to kind of in the way that we shape society and he he kind of did a bit of a play on words around this idea of responsibility and you know being conscious being aware being psychologically flexible is to you know 
grab your response ability. Yeah. This this ability to be able to respond. It's almost like the rite of passage is when you are maybe looking to your parent for what response should I be making uh, and doing it maybe maybe clumsily when you try versus Mm. kind of becoming a man and saying, I can actually now hold my own values and my ethics and my morals and, you know, maybe my family name or whatever it is that's important, my culture and act in accordance, you know, in, in response to my abilities and doing them wisely and well. Yeah. Well, I would say that that's probably the, I would say, yeah, I would say that's the cornerstone of what a conscious man is. It's someone who is responsible both for himself and also sees a place for himself in broader society. Mm. Um, so, you know, I should actually probably define what a conscious man is. I think we kind of maybe please, um, please do. didn't go into that. Um, so a conscious man is, is a man who has free will. Um, it's, it, he's capable of having his own thoughts rather than the thoughts that have been internalized from uh, prior conditioning by other people. And so his journey is to ask himself, you know, what, what programming do I have? What distortions and illusions am I carrying inside me? What thoughts are holding me hostage? And at that point, he starts an investigation into his belief systems and his limiting ideas about himself and the world around him. Um, you know, I, I think of it in terms of him being a private investigator. Uh, of his own experience. Um, For instance, uh, you know, oftentimes in life, someone says something or does something and it upsets us, we get triggered, we have an emotional reaction to something, which is potentially out of proportion to what is going on in the here and now. But so, and you know, all of us have experienced that, but for the conscious man, that, that gives him an opportunity to become the private investigator of his own experience. He can, he can ask himself about uh, the processes that influence his sense-making by asking himself, not just, you know, so he can ask, by asking himself certain questions, like how does my mind actually work? Not just what do I believe, what do I think, but how did I form my thoughts? How did I form my beliefs? By what processes? You know, how do I how do I make decisions? How do I reason and think? It's kind of like it's kind of meta thinking. Um, And, uh, you know, in contrast to that, you have the unconscious man who and I'd say a lot of us are like this. You know, even though we can experience life consciously, it seems that we're largely predisposed to being in an unconscious state of thought and behavior. You know, we carry these scripts internal and external and um these the the programming that we receive from our society and our culture and the the people who are unconscious who remain unconscious are those who have never questioned or unlikely ever to question their programming to any great extent and whose lives are strongly colored by the values that society tells them are worthy of pursuing like consumerism for instance um competing with the joneses or, or whatever it might be and and we place so much of our identities on these labels and these limits and what it means to be a certain person in this world. And um, I, this is why I write about true nature and be, our journey is to 
step into our true nature and discover it um, within ourselves. I like the idea of true nature as well, Michael, because I think I've got a bit of a leaning towards the evolutionary biology model and, and true nature to me also suggests uh, being true in one's own context. And as the context changes, the modern man is living in a different world than what I grew up in and what you grew up in. And so the modern man will be different to you and I. Yes. Uh, yeah. He, he will ask himself uh, and have his own thoughts around what does it mean to be a man? And right. uh, like you and I did, maybe when I was growing up to be a man was to be, you know, physically strong and, 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 and maybe even violent with others. And maybe the new modern man or another modern man, my apologies, uh, uh, explores that differently. And, and we hope on, 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 on average, and as the context changes of, of this world, and obviously we're in a very, very um, technologically advanced world in comparison to even, you know, 50 years ago, uh, the modern man, you know, has to be different than you and I. Yeah, absolutely. So I, true nature I, will be different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I give an analogy in the book, a metaphor um, about the, so ju just as the, there, there is a, just as the image of an oak tree is inherent in the acorn. Um, this, this, this relates to our true nature. We have within us an intrinsic aspect, just as the acorn has an intrinsic aspect of the oak tree. But it, it depends where you plant that acorn. If you plant it in different environments, it'll grow up representing something very different had it been planted in, in one environment or another or another. So, you know, modern man is being implanted in the modern world and is growing up in this environment. And given another environment, he will ex uh, exhibit different um, aspects of who he is in the fullness of his being. But behind that, the true nature doesn't change. Um, behind that, and I talk, it, so this is where the book leans into a, a little bit of a spirituality. And spiritual awakening is where you have a level of awareness of who you really are, what your divine nature and animal nature, actually, for, to, that, um, to that extent, what your divine nature really is. Um, it's about taking the awareness of your true nature and you know, not simply saying to yourself, oh, that's interesting, but actually living the truth of your nature. Um, it, then be, it, it then becomes transformative um, and it takes uh, integration and embodiment to live from your true nature. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, how should I say it? Uh, it's important to, you know, look into ourselves, to reflect on ourselves and discover our true nature so that we can engage with life with personal integrity and authenticity. And, um, you know, I talk about it, uh, 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 honoring our path of, of personal mastery in the book, which is, you know, that's a very masculine context of, of having a path, um, having a code of honor and a mission to fulfill in life. Uh, Eric Fromm uh, spoke quite uh, strongly about this in his work as well. Um, you know, we have this personal path of mastery of right thought, right word, right action, right intent 
to borrow from Buddhist uh, thinking. And the thing is, we, we focus on what works best for us, what's unique to us as the unique individual that we are, uh, what our unique aptitudes are. And this is the path of purpose. So it doesn't matter what the environment is. We simply come in touch with who we are at our core, at our essence, and seek to implement those things that are inherent with up, within us, having the, um, the self-awareness to figure ourselves out and the courage to live from that expression. It's really interesting just listening to how, how much of that language is, is so masculine as well. Like, <laughs> even, even the word mastery, um, maybe I'm looking into it too much, but it, it, it's so, you know, masculine you know men love mastery i'm sure women do as well but there's something in there and, and i can't obviously speak on women's behalf but um there's something there you know right thought right intent right action you know men love yeah. this stuff yeah i mean i may be projecting mesh but when when you just talked about that it sounded like you found that a little bit problematic that talking about mastery is something and tell me if this is a projection but there was some doubt in your voice about whether or not that's a good thing or not. No, no, look, I, I, I love it. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, mastery is, is so much around mastery is about, you know, having a purpose, having direction, having meaning in one's life. I mean, I, I watch my daughter every day trying to do a handstand and all she's trying to do is master handstand and master it. And I'm constantly yes. applauding her, wanting right. her to do more and more. Um, so I know it applies everywhere, but, that word, maybe it's just my own lived experience. I, I love mastery. You know, I, I, yeah. I um, want to be the best, you know, I want, 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 want to try the hardest. I, I, you know, want, want to, to do well. And maybe, you know, I want my parents to be proud of me. I'm not sure where, where that all comes from, but uh, that's a strong thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's holding space. This is a, a, mm. a divine masculine trait is holding space for others. Um, you know, I give uh, the metaphor of, of uh, a number of metaphors like you know when you're playing ball catch with your kid when you're playing ball you know you don't throw the ball at him full force you throw it according to his capabilities and you catch it according to his capabilities or uh, when you uh, let's just imagine that uh, your wife is learning how to paint and it's a windy day and you're standing next to her and you're holding the canvas steady as she paints this is holding space for her and men have this capability of holding space for others. You know, we, we hold back our orgasm so that the woman can rise to meet her orgasm first. This is holding space for our woman. It transcends so many different spaces, doesn't it? It's, 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 uh, uh, it's, it's interesting to explore uh, you know, the complementary nature of, of, you know, men and, and, and women i know we haven't had much time to to look at look at that whether it's you know sexual connections or you know connectivity or how men um can be available you know to you know for their partners um both male and female um uh it's 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 interesting to see the dynamic because clearly there's a dynamic out there that nature continues to to produce yes yeah yeah, it's quite magical. And, and this, you know, it, it, I do focus, I'm not just focused on how men and women 
relate dysfunctionally in the book. I also talk about what uh, high level relationships, highly evolved relationships look like and how men and women can bring themselves into alignment with their opposite sex. So much to uh, talk about, Michael. I'm, I'm, <laughs> so I'm, time. I'm cognizant that it's almost midnight know, where you are, so um, probably do need to, to wrap it up. But uh, where, where can people find out more? Where can people also get, get your book? So I have a website, uh, michaelronin.net, and uh, people can get in touch with me there if they read the book and have any questions. Uh, about it or want to share any of their experience with me, uh, please contact me through the website. I don't really do social media. Um, I find it generally very dispiriting. It brings out the shittiest version of people and uh, <laughs> I don't really want, want to be in that environment. So I have a website. Uh, I'm also on Goodreads, uh, which is a, a book website. Uh, I have a profile there where people can contact me. And the book is available on Amazon in ebook or paperback. Uh, the title is Modern Masculinity for the Conscious Man. Michael, I appreciate your time and honesty and openness to, to have these hard conversations. And I know that listeners would, you know, will be definitely getting a lot out of this, you know, particularly to, to hear it from, from the very start to, to, to the end. And the truth is this is only the very, very, very surface level. I'm sure you get into <laughs> Uh, so much more in your book and and obviously yeah. you know in, in in further further thought and consciousness and maybe you know getting to that, that own place of taking our own free will to have our own thoughts and question and, and make up our mind so uh, well, michael really appreciate your time and and uh honesty and uh, uh thank you thank you again for appearing on the show nesh it's been a real pleasure thank you so much for hosting it if you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out i'd love to hear from you